something I shared with you guys yesterday is that uh, I'm a father. I have four children. My wife and I this weekend actually celebrate 14 years of marriage, which is pretty awesome. Thank you. How many of you are, are 13 or younger? Raise your hand. So my marriage is older than you. Uh, that's crazy. My wife and I have uh, three biological children of our own, Mason, Marley, and Max. How they all got M names, it happened accidentally. Uh, we had a Mason, and then we had a Marley, and we got to the third kid, and it was like, it can't be Tom. Like, what have we done? We have to go with the M names. About seven years ago now, God had put this really crazy vision on our hearts. He put something in front of us that, uh, that truthfully required obedience. It required us to practice what we'd been preaching for all these years in ministry. Something that was costly. Something that was sacrificial. Something that was scary. Have you ever had to do something scary before? Yeah? The thing God put on the hearts of my wife and I was to adopt a child. And it was interesting because we had three kids of our own, and uh, it always felt like there was just a missing piece in our home. So we, uh, we got online. We're all good ventures of obedience start, right? Am I, am I right, counselors? You're like, I think I need to do something. I need to Google it. Uh, and so we found this adoption agency, and one thing led to another. We filled out an application that turned into some training that turned into our having to kind of redo our home to make sure it was safe for a child, that turned into having a social worker, that turned into waiting. And that waiting period, God teaches you a lot. You can learn a lot about God through waiting. If you're a junior high student here, I just want you to know that. And the waiting is really where some of the deepest lessons of faith come from. We like to think that deep lessons of faith come through leading worship or teaching a sermon or leading a company or becoming a professional athlete. No, those are the products of years and years and years of faithful obedience. It wasn't long after that period of waiting that we were placed with a child. My fourth daughter kind of moved in with us, actually. We were living right up here at Hume in that, uh, in that little brown house right across the street from the dining hall. That was our home. And twice a week, we would drive from here to Bakersfield so that my daughter could have visitation with her biological family. Visitation was really hard. I won't go into the details, but I'm sure you can imagine the, the difficulties that would put a child into the foster care system in the first place. In fact, maybe some of you, that's your story, that's your journey. Maybe just the word adoption is kind of triggering for you. So twice a week, we'd get into our family car and we'd drive to Bakersfield for visitation. And as parents, even as foster parents, my wife and I noticed that this, this ritual of getting in the car and going to visitation was incredibly difficult for uh, our little one. And so we decided to do something. Can I borrow this here? Yeah. yeah. So we decided to take, uh, to take her backpack. It wasn't this backpack. What's in here? You got fireworks in here or something? Oh, I don't want it. I'm just kidding. Uh, there's not fireworks in here. I don't want it, man. Uh, there's water in here? Um, so we would go and... Uh, you got any money? It's my water now. Good stuff. It's good stuff. What's your name? Can I at least know your name since we share a water bottle now? Thanks, Andre. 
I picked the right guy. If you're saying I picked the wrong guy to mess with, that means he's the right guy. Uh, so listen, twice a week we would, we would go to the Department of Human and Family Services in Bakersfield, California. And because this was such a hard and difficult triggering experience for our then two-and-a-half-year-old daughter, we decided to take a backpack. In that backpack, we would put all of her favorite things. We'd put an extra change of clothes in there in case she had an accident. We'd put a lunch, a water bottle, sometimes a stuffed animal or a blanket, things that would remind her of home. Well, God did something miraculous. Because over the course of the next couple of years, as we're grueling through this journey of foster care and adoption, God opened up an opportunity for us to adopt my daughter. And so on July 18th of 2018, we adopted her. As if unto us, the judge said. She got a new name. Her last name became ours. She's a part of the family. One of the happiest days of our entire life. She called it her wedding day. How special is that? Easy, Andre. So here's what happened. What happened was uh, we no longer needed the backpack. We didn't need it anymore. But she really liked it. Maybe you have one of those things, like apparently Andre's water bottle, that just mean a lot to you. That mean more to you than maybe they should. It has sentimental value. It has emotional value. Can you think of something in your life like that? For my daughter, it was the backpack. And so one day I was cleaning out the car and I put the backpack up on this shelf in our garage because I, I, I can't get rid of it. Like, it has a lot of meaning to us. Six months go by. Don't even think about it. I'm cleaning out the garage one day, and I took a bunch of stuff out of this shelf and set it on the ground. One of those items was the backpack. And as I'm doing so, my daughter, her name is Maylee, she comes out of the house and into the garage just to check out what was happening. She definitely wasn't coming to help, but she just wanted to see what was going on, you know? And she goes, oh, my backpack. I've been looking for that. And then I could just see the emotion immediately fill her eyes because this was associated with a time of her life that was really hard and broken and difficult. And so I sat down. I sat down and I said, well, why do we need this backpack, May? What do we need this backpack for? She goes, well, it's mine. I go, okay. It's a rule of toddlers. If they touch it, it's theirs, you know? Do any of you have little brothers and sisters or cousins that like, they're like the seagulls from Finding Nemo? It's just mine? Like Andre over here? Yeah, okay. So, so she goes, well, it's mine. And I could tell that this was going to be a difficult lesson for her to learn. And so I said, well, why do we need the backpack apart from it being yours? And she didn't have an answer. She just knew that it was something that was special to her. It was special to her. And so we, we brokered a deal in that moment. We made a trade. I said, hey, I'll buy you a new backpack because this one has served its purpose. We don't need this backpack anymore. It took a minute, but we made the trade. So I took her to Tilly's and she picked out a new backpack and all was well. But here's the point. The point of the story is in light of what we talked about this morning, we carry these things with us through life. We carry these sinful experiences with us. 
A lot of times sin enters our lives in a moment where we're triggered, where we're feeling pain, and we just want to cope with that pain, and so we'll turn to like an excessive amount of video games or food or pornography or a boyfriend or girlfriend or inappropriate relationship. We'll turn to something to make us feel better, and God says, no, 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 I'm enough for you. I'm enough for you. Just like we saw here depicted in the story, for each of us, when it comes to our sin, just like we talked about this morning, you have to understand that your sin brings death. But the way of God is to bring you life. Your sin brings you separation from God. And God says, give that to me. I'll take that from you and I'll exchange it with something that's going to be life-giving. I'll exchange it for something that's going to make you whole and holy and new. Turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus. We're going to pick right back up in this story. Actually, while we turn there, I need him to wake up with the sunglasses. Yeah, yeah, you got to wake up. Okay, perfect. All right, so Exodus chapter 12. Genesis, Exodus chapter 12 is where we're going to be. Remember, Genesis first book, Exodus second book. And we see this kind of incredibly crazy moment happen in the journey of the Israelites as they're leaving Egypt, as they're leaving slavery. You guys there? We're getting a little squirrely. We doing all right tonight? You guys have a good day? Yeah? I promise if you focus with me tonight, I promise to do my best to teach you something that will absolutely change your life. And it just takes you listening and focusing, okay? Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12, verse 21. It says, When Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, that's like a a plant, and dip it in the blood in the basin and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the doorframe. None of you shall go out the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe and will pass over the doorway and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and for your descendants. And when you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them it is Passover, sacrifice to the Lord, who passed over the house's of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshiped and the Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. What you saw depicted through the film tonight is this incredibly powerful moment in the history of Egypt where God is delivering on his promise to be just. God promises to be just. In fact, one of the words that we would describe about the love of God is that it has justice, meaning it's it's taking care of a crime that was committed. Well, what what crime? Corey, what are you talking about? What crime was done? Remember, remember, the crime that was committed is that we sinned against a holy and perfect God. And so this act of the Israelites putting blood as an atoning sacrifice on their door frames so that the Spirit of the Lord would pass over their homes and spare them, was an act of God showing mercy to the Israelites. If you turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, I'll I'll read this one for us, actually. Don't worry about turning there with me. 
Turn in your Bibles. No, don't turn there. I just said don't. Uh, In your Bible, in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 9, verse 19 through 22, it says this. It says, it says, when Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop. Same, same thing we just read. And sprinkled the scroll and all his people and said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood And without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness because blood is life. And so this this Old Testament ceremony of what we would call Passover is this moment where, where we see foreshadowed a blood sacrifice that would take care of God's wrath and punishment for sin once and for all. Are you tracking with me? Let me just restate everything I've covered so far really quickly. One, we looked at how God is holy We look that God is holy and perfect. And as a result of God being holy, he's able to be loving. He's able to be merciful, and he's able to be just. And as a result of God being just, we talked this morning about how you and I are guilty of what the Bible calls a sin. That would be a transgression against a holy and perfect God. In fact, Scripture teaches that as a result of our sin, God looked at us apart from his son Jesus as enemies of his not able to have a relationship with him at all. In order to understand this better, maybe at some point this week, read through your Bible to, uh, in, in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. In Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, you can see the perfect history of humanity, the way God designed and created things to be. The understanding was that God is the author and maker and creator of life. And God, in making and creating life, he breathes stars out of his mouth. He snaps his fingers and hangs the sun in the sky. He speaks, and the earth is now in existence. But when it came to you and I, when it came time for us to be created, it says that he knelt down, and out of the dust, the clay of the earth, he formed man. And then he breathed. This Hebrew word for breath is translated into ruach. God breathed his life. He impressed upon us himself. And for a short period of time, life was the way that it was meant to be lived. For a short period of time, mankind got to live in perfect relational unity with God the way that life was meant to be lived. Let let me ask you a question, and it's not rhetorical. Do you find yourself wondering over the course of these last few years, is this just the way life is supposed to be? covid Ukraine, all of the craziness that's happening in the world. Has anyone just had that moment where you're like, is this just the way life is supposed to be? You're wondering, was life always meant to be this hard, this difficult, this dark? Maybe some of you lost people you loved through the pandemic. Maybe some of you lost friends through the pandemic. Maybe some of you changed churches during the pandemic. Maybe some of you changed schools during the pandemic. Maybe some of you have had to say goodbye to activities, sports, extracurricular things that you love so much. That pain, that hardship, that difficulty, that sadness is not the way life was supposed to be. Life was supposed to be lived in perfect relational unity. That is to say, in relationship with the God who made and created every single one of us in this room. And then sin entered the world. 
And when sin enters the world in Genesis chapter 3, we see this severing of that relationship that I'm speaking to. We see us cut off from God. We see over time this separation between mankind and God. So much so that by the time we get here in the book of Exodus, God's people, who were meant to live in a garden with him, in perfect unity, are now enslaved by one of the world's greatest superpowers. It's not the way it's supposed to be. It's the perfect illustration for the oppression, the bondage, and the slavery. Focus, focus, focus. It's the perfect example of what sin does to us. What we see happening on screen to to the Israelites, what we see happening on screen to Moses' people as he seeks to lead them out of Copperhead is precisely where we are apart from God. It's the perfect picture. That's why in Ephesians chapter 2, as we read this morning, we, we saw these words in Ephesians 2. It says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you once walked. He says, you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. And all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. You were far from God. You were an enemy of God. You were at one point in your life, or maybe even where you sit today, if you haven't put your faith in God, on an opposite side of God's love. Not on a a receiving end, on a way that was pitted against him. We read on. It says, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. What does sin do? What does sin cause? What does sin cause? What does sin cause? Death. Your sin has caused you death, which equates to separation from Christ. Death. Done. No more. But Ephesians tells us That because of his great love for us, that because this is a God who's not a bully on an anthill with a magnifying glass seeking to fry people who go against him, that's not the picture of God that we read in Scripture. In fact, it couldn't be more opposite. The picture of this God that we read in Scripture from Genesis chapter 3 verse 14 makes a promise that there's going to be a day where he will strike the head of evil with his heel. That there will be a day where you have the ability to experience life the way that it was meant to be lived. And the only way, friend, for you to experience life the way that it was meant to be lived is through a relationship with Jesus. That's the only way. There is no other way. And you might say, but I'm a good person. And I would say, but are you holy? You might say, but I help people. And I would say, but are you holy? Are you perfect? When perfection is the standard, there's no way for us to get there. And that's why scripture teaches that he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. It was impossible for us to do this on our own. It was impossible for us to ever be good enough 
going to church enough, going to a Christian school, that is not the remedy for the separation that you have experienced as a result of sin. There's only one way. We read on, it says, you were, he's made us alive together with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions, for it is by grace that you have been saved. And then it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, that, that God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Please hear this. If you're not listening to anything else I'm saying, listen to this part. At some point in time, we started to think that Jesus was the answer to going to heaven when we die and not hell. And so what we've done is we've created an entire caste system that offers people proverbial health insurance, completely overlooking the fact that an eternity with God is just a small piece to the puzzle. Life with God here today is the point of all of this. Like, like the freedom and the love, the hope that we have in God, that doesn't start when your heart stops beating. That starts the moment you put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. That's why he says that God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Friends, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God's, not by works, so that no one can boast. It's a free gift of God. The offer that God puts for us who are dead is to be made alive together with him. And that's why John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world. How does it go? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever should believe, say it with me, that whoever should believe, whoever should believe. Do you know what that word belief means? That word belief is the same word that caused my daughter to want to exchange backpacks with me. That word belief is the one thing that nobody can do for you, only you can do it yourself. You might say, well, like I said earlier, I go to church. I, go, I, li I'm, I'm a, I live in a Christian home. My parents are really strong believers. My dad's an elder. My mom's a women's pastor. I go to a Christian school. I don't cuss. I only play Fortnite 20 minutes a day, not an hour like all my heathen friends, right? Like you might be going, I'm good. No, that's not what saves you. Belief. Belief in Jesus is the thing that saves you. So here's the question I have. Are you in need of saving? I don't want you to answer this one out loud. I want you to take a moment and just think to yourself. Is there a moment in your life where you have put your faith in Jesus? Is there a moment at a camp or at church or around the dinner table? Maybe it was at Easter when you were a kid. Is there a moment in your life where you can think back to, I put my faith in Jesus at that moment? Here's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, that all that is necessary for us to come to a saving faith in Jesus is to confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and to believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. To believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. To make a verbal profession and to believe, there's that word again, in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. That second part's massively important. Because just like the Israelites had to sprinkle blood on the doorposts of their tents 
to have the judgment of God pass over them so that they can be shown grace and mercy. The same thing was true of us. But we no longer live in a time where we have to make sacrifices and atonements for our sins because 2,000 years ago, a man named Jesus walked this earth and took care of that for us. He fulfilled hundreds of Old Testament prophecies that promised of a Messiah that would come. He took the entire law and prophets on his shoulders and he fulfilled it through living a perfect, sinless life. And in less than a month, we're going to celebrate the most incredible holiday that the world celebrates even to this day. And it's the day where Jesus goes to the cross. That's Good, that's good Friday. And he takes upon himself the punishment that we deserved. It wasn't the crucifixion. It wasn't the whipping. It wasn't the beatings. It's in that moment where he yells aloud with a loud voice and says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, Jesus experiences the punishment that you and I deserve, that is separation, death from the Father. The scriptures teach at the end of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that they took his body down off that cross. And there was a wealthy man named Joseph of Arimathea who offered up his tomb, a place where Jesus' body could be laid. His disciples confused and sad and worried and not understanding what had just happened. This guy promised for three years and then he dies? Like, what's going on here? So they lay his body in a tomb. Three days later, Jesus' friends, who just so happened to be women, came to visit the tomb and, and to, uh, to kind of maybe drop some flowers, to pray some prayers, to remember their friend and their, and their rabbi. And when they showed up, the strangest thing had happened. The giant, me-sized stone was rolled away from the opening of the tomb. And when they peeked inside, they saw that the linens that once wrapped his body were neatly folded in the corner. And then the Bible teaches that an angel appeared and said, hey, if you're looking for Jesus, he's not here. He's been resurrected. If we put the pieces together of everything we just talked about, here's the story that the Bible tells us about Jesus. It's the story about a sinless, perfect man taking our separation, our death, the punishment we deserved onto his shoulders, dying the death that we were owed, and then three days later proving that he has the power to make dead things alive again through resurrecting. And if you, friends, sit in this room not having a relationship with this God, you're in a place of death. That's why Romans 10.9 is so special. It says if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus has the power to make dead things alive again, we will be saved. I'm not talking about a moment where you feel better falling asleep at night knowing that you'll go to the good place when you die, not the bad place. No, because when Jesus invites people to be his followers, he invites them to come and live with him, to be a disciple of his, to follow him with their very lives. Luke 9.23, Jesus says, let anyone who would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily to follow me. That's what it means for us to put our faith in Jesus, to live in this new way of life, to live with God here on earth in a way that life was always meant to be lived. And the benefit of that is he takes our sins away and he makes us whole and he makes us new. So here's what I want to do. I want you to focus, look up here at me for a second. I'm going to ask you a question that only you can answer. Distraction-free. Don't worry about your friends. If you're tired, I have that effect on people. You can go to bed in a minute, okay? If you're trying to be funny, if you're trying to get attention, just time out. Human to human. 
Do you have a relationship with this God that I'm talking about? Do you know him? Is there a moment in your life where you said, Jesus, take my sin away. I want to live with you. I want to experience what John 14 calls this abundant life. I want to know what it means to live life with the person who made everything that I know and see and experience in this existence. Do you have that? Let me pray for you. Bow bow your heads. Lord God, I pray in this moment that you would give maturity and clarity to these students, that you would allow them to assess in their own hearts and in their own souls an answer to a question that only they know. Do they know you? Do they know you? So friends, before I say amen, I want you to just quietly look back up here at me. Like Romans 10.9 says, all that's necessary for you to put your faith in Jesus is to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. I'm gonna count to three. And if you've never made that decision before, let me be clear, I'm not talking to the people who make this decision all the time. I wanna talk to the people who have never made this decision before. On the count of three, if that exchange, your sin being taken away, you're repenting, you're turning from that sin to live for God, you're believing right here, right now, that Jesus is everything we've just looked at in Scripture, I want you to stand and say, I believe, right here in front of all your friends. If you'd like to put your faith in Jesus for the, for the very first time tonight, on the count of three, I want you to stand and say the words, I believe. Now, you may want to do it because your friend does, not the point. You may want to do it because you do this every year at camp, not the point. This is just between me and you and God right here in this moment. On the count of three. One, two, three. Stay standing. Stay standing. Stay standing. Stay standing. I see you. Hang on, focus, focus. Just to be clear, we're doing this for the first time. If you're standing, my assumption is you've never done this before. Okay, all right. For those of you who are standing right now, I want you to look up at me. These words might not make sense today. You can process it with your teacher, with your counselor. But Jesus promises that in this world, you will have trouble. In other words, the decision that you just made to stand and do this doesn't make your life better in this moment. But here's what it does. It invites the sin-conquering, saving grace of God into your life, and you get to walk forever with God's presence as a part of who you are. In this moment, you've been made whole and holy before God. He says what what he asks in return is that we would live with and for him. And so if you're sitting around, one of these friends who has just put their faith in Jesus for the first time, I want you to put a hand on them. And what we're going to do is we're going to pray for these new brothers and sisters who have made one of the coolest decisions, maybe absolutely the greatest decision and most important decision you can ever make. And so, God, we say thank you in this moment for these junior hires who are choosing tonight to believe in you, that they have quite literally confessed with their mouth that Jesus is Lord through standing and saying, I believe. Those words 
echo the truth found in Mark 1.13, when Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is here, repent and believe the good news. Tonight we've seen repentance. Tonight we've seen these students turn from their, their darkness, turn from the sin that reigned and ruled their life, and move towards you to a life of abundance, to a life of peace, to a life of holiness. God, I pray that you would surround these students with communities who love you and know you. I pray that you would provide with them men and women of faith and character who can disciple them, who can teach them what it means to be formed by your spirit, who can teach them what it means to serve you all of their days and through all of their ways as long as their heart has a beat and their breath has lungs. Would this moment, God, March 21st, 2022 at Hume Lake, be a moment that is forever etched in their brains. This is the day where these students stood and decided, I'm not living for me anymore. Jesus, I believe in the gospel. I believe in your power over death and life. And so, Lord, in this moment, I choose to live for you. Thank you for the rest of us who got to witness the sweetness of salvation in its first moments. With this image of courageous and bold students standing for the first time, be forever etched in our brain as the reason for why we have breath in our lungs to share the hope and good news in light of you, Jesus. We love you. We are honored and grateful. We pray all of these things in your name. Amen.